0: following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Hey, uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab a hold of them and let's open them up to Matthew chapter 19? Matthew 19 is where we're gonna be uh, this morning. You can open a phone or a tablet to Matthew 19. We'll be reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. Uh, Those hardback black Bibles under every chair, you can open those up to Matthew 19. Uh, You can find that on page 824. Uh, To our online friends, there's like Bibles online. Good luck to you, okay? Uh, There's no hardback black Bible underneath you unless you stole one from us, in which case that's a sin, okay? Uh, We'll deal with that another time, but... Hey, as you're, as you're getting there to Matthew 19, last week I took Matthew 19 verses 10 through 12. We went a little out of order. Uh, we're going to do chapter 19 verses one through nine today. Uh, we went out of order because last week, uh, we had our last parenting class, which I'm told was a great experience, but we had a number of married people in our basement. And to, today we wanted to talk about this topic with married people in the room. Uh, so last week we, we talked about singleness. All right. Also known as the eunuch sermon. You guys, okay. Uh, so that was fun. It was a good time. Uh, I had an enjoyable time last week. I hope you did as well. This, this week gets heavier. Okay, just a fair warning. Today's topic gets a bit weightier of these kind of two small relationship series that we get into in Matthew chapter 19. Today, Jesus is gonna talk about divorce and remarriage. Divorce and remarriage. Uh, Divorce. Divorce has affected uh, many of us in this room, a lot of people in our church. Uh, Some of you may have gone through it yourselves there are divorced people in our church. Some of you may be going through it right now. Maybe you're in a difficult marriage or you might be in the midst of uh, separation. Uh, Goodness, for many of you, maybe your uh, experience with divorce is, is you watched your parents go through it. Or maybe an aunt or an uncle or a friend's parents, but, but whatever it might be, uh, almost, I would wager, all of us have some experience with this topic of divorce, and, and what I want you to know as we kind of uh, enter into this today is that I don't come judgmentally to this topic this morning. I'm not coming with judgment because uh, for, for, for many of you, I'm guessing this was one of the most painful times in your life, and it was likely something that if you could have avoided it, you would have. I mean, nobody is like excited about divorce unless you're real twisted. I mean, really. And so so some Christians talk about divorce as if it's almost akin to the unforgivable sin. Like it's unforgivable, okay? As if it's the one thing that you can't ever really come back from. It's like a scarlet D that you wear on your chest for the rest of your life. And and I just wanna tell you, that's simply not the case. That's simply not the case. The cross, Jesus' death and resurrection covers all sin, every sin, past sin, present sin, and future sin, or else it would not be efficacious for salvation. It wouldn't be working for our salvation. Uh, So that's where I wanna start. I, I do also wanna point out some statistics. Statistics don't tell all the story, but I think it's helpful when we talk about divorce. Here's some statistics about 50% of first marriages will end in divorce. That's the United States average. About half, about half. About 60% of second marriages up to 67%, depending on what, uh, your, what stats you're reading, but up to 60 to 67% of second marriages will end in divorce. And it's staggering that up to 75, 73 to 75% of third er- marriages will end in divorce. Three quarters of third marriages will end in divorce. And, and some will wanna point then to the statistic that divorce rates among Christians are just about the same. They'll point to, to people who profess that they are Christians and say the divorce rate is about 47 to 50% within people who profess that they are Christians. They call themselves Christians. But I do want to point out that, that, that Barna, the Barna Research Group, did a study that showed that divorce rates among, quote, practicing Christians... And and to qualify that, uh, to be a practicing Christian, the person must say that their faith is, quote, very important in their life, and they must have attended at least one church service within the past month. So that category of practicing Christians, uh, the divorce rate there is approximately 27%. So it's lower, it's lower, okay? Uh, But that's still an ominous figure in my estimation. And uh, and then I did my best to go through our church roster. We're a small church, so I could do this. And I know many of you, if not most of your stories, um, but I went through our roster and this number might be a little off, but somewhere around 10% of the adults at Fathom have been divorced. So we're a little lower than, than kind of the average. But that's also because we're a really... Um, there's not a lot of hear me looky lose at our church. As a small church, we just kind of like you, you, it's not a, it's not a good place to hide. We say that often, right? This isn't like slip in the back, slip out the back kind of church. This you, you're, I'm gonna catch you in the hallway. I mean, it's like part of my strategy. All right, like so, so, so I think that number makes sense. All right, now one last stat to share, just just to get us all adequately depressed before we jump into the text, okay? Um, Children of divorced parents are 35% more likely themselves to be divorced one day. So I don't even know how to do the math between the 50% divorce rate and then the, the stat for div- children of divorce. I don't even know how to do that math, uh, but, but it's not good. It's not good. And I don't say any of this, hear me, from a situation devoid of personal experience. So uh, my story is this, both of my parents were already married and divorced before they married each other. So they were already on their second marriage. I'm a, I am a product of a second marriage. And then later my parents divorced each other and they are now both remarried for the third time. And I don't say that to throw my parents under the bus. Okay. I love both of my parents very much. Um, But I just want to point out that I am not unscathed from this either. Okay, You see, when Marcy and I were engaged, we were doing our premarital counseling. uh, And one of the things that came up in those conversations was that uh, she was nervous about the fact that I had seen so much divorce. She was nervous about that. It was what was modeled to me. It was what was normal for me. In fact, there's not even statistics for a guy like me like products of multiple divorce and remarriages. There's not like, hey, what's the 35%, what's the second time, what's the third time? There's no, there's no stats out there for that. And so, so we were a little worried entering into our marriage and rightly so. Like the odds are against people like me. I'm predisposed to run when things get difficult. That's just the stats, everybody. It's just the stats. But I'm gonna say something right off the bat. And I just want you to hear this before we kind of dial into our text. And that's this, where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. I'm gonna say this throughout this sermon. Where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. I come from a place where the ideal is lacking. Where the ideal is lacking. And by God's grace, Marcy and I will celebrate this week on Friday, our 16th anniversary. No divorces. That's why I said that, because I needed the whistle, you know, golf clap. I appreciate that, okay? And I know many of you have maybe not the exact same story, but you have a similar story. Divorce is somewhere in your story. And for you, this isn't just like a topic to philosophize on, but it's, it's a hurt. It's a pain. It's a reality for you. But... One of the things that we are committed to do here at Fathom is to preach the whole counsel of God's word. We're committed to preaching this whole book. And and that means that when we come to hard parts, when we come to parts that make us uncomfortable, we still need to handle it. We need to deal with it. And y'all, I wrestled hard this week with some of what I'm gonna have to say today. I mean, I wrestled hard with this. Um, but we're people of the book. This is this is our authority. It's not our feelings that are our authority. It's not what the culture says that is our our authority. The the, the scriptures are our authority. So if today brings up any pain for you or maybe some scars for you, or maybe even leaves you with some questions, I'm just gonna trust that this is what God wants us to do. He wants us to dig in deeply here. And listen, we're always available for you to talk about these things afterwards. Let's respond and talk about these things. But as always, remember this statement, where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. This is is what we will talk about on repeat. So let's get into the text, okay? Matthew chapter 19, we're gonna start in verse one. Follow along with me in your text. Matthew 19, one. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he just finished talking about forgiveness, forgiving people. When he had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Verse three. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So that's the start of our text. These Pharisees come to Jesus with a question. They are questioning Jesus, but the text tells us they're not actually fact-seeking. In fact, what they're trying to do is trap him. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to trick Jesus. This is a test not to see whether or not Jesus is like a prophet or if he's the Messiah. They've already made their decision in Matthew's gospel on that. They don't like Jesus. They've already made that call. What they are trying to test him in and trap him in is they are seeking something that they can use against him to turn the people against him. That's the test at hand. So the motive behind their question from the the ground up is dubious. Their motive is dubious. And so this is what they ask. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's what they ask. And 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 I'll just say this as a side note. This is a side note, but I'll just say this. If you're looking for a reason to get divorced, you will find any reason to get divorced. If you're looking for a reason to get a divorce, you will find as many reasons as you need to to get a divorce. If you start looking, you'll find them. You will. So they ask, is there is it is it lawful? Is it permissible? for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. And they ask that question about divorce because it was a cultural trap for him. It was a cultural trap. So at the time, in Jesus' day, there were two schools within the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious, some of the religious elite in the Jewish uh, uh, Hebrew nation, um, uh, and there were two primary schools of uh, rabbis within this. Uh, the two schools are Shammai, Rabbi Shammai, and Rabbi Hillel. Those are the two schools of thought in uh, the, the, the Pharisees. Shammai was more conservative. Shammai was the more conservative branch of Judaism. And they taught that it was only lawful to divorce a wife based on sexual immorality. That's the only reason why you could divorce your wife. Hillel though, that second school was more liberal. They were more liberal. And so uh, just so you know, Hillel was the predominant view in society at this time. And it allowed divorce of one's wife for any reason whatsoever. That's how they read the old Testament. Literally we have records. You can, you can find these records and read them yourselves permitting divorce for trivial things like bad cooking, like burning the toast. I mean, literally like uh, there, there, there's, there are records that we have of, of, of men being permitted to divorce their wives because they find a prettier woman. This was the culture, the predominant Jewish culture. So, so they come to him with this question. This question is a test. It's a test because no matter how he answers, he's certainly gonna ostracize one side or the other of the Jewish people. But then Jesus answers and his answer is brilliant. Brilliant. Look at verse four. Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Verse six. So they are no longer two, but one. Flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, if you're arguing in first century Judaism with some Pharisees, uh, the way that you would wanna do this is what Jesus just did because in Jewish interpretation, the further one went back into the Old Testament, into the Torah, the earlier words carried more weight, more authority. So earlier words could trump Uh, Later words and so jesus he goes all the way back He goes all the way back to genesis He quotes genesis 1 1 he alludes to it. But when he says from the beginning The very first words of the bible are in the beginning. Jesus alludes to genesis 1 1 Then he alludes to genesis 2 7 or i'm sorry 127 when he says male and female he created them So he's alluding back to creation. And then finally in verse five that we just read, Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24 to show that from the beginning, from the beginning, when he created the male and female, it was God's will that marriage would be how those two related, not divorce. So here's his tactic of argument. His tactic is to bring up the very principles of God's creation. And he makes marriage his first point. He doesn't answer their question about divorce with a a statement on divorce. At least at first, what he does is he talks about what marriage actually is. And I'll make that our first point this morning as well. Before we talk about divorce and remarriage, we need to be clear about what biblical marriage is. And so biblical marriage is one man and one woman for one lifetime. That's biblically what marriage is supposed to be. That was God's intention in the beginning, and that is his intention all the way to this day. In marriage, God has yoked two people together in oneness. The two shall become one flesh, and therefore, no one should be allowed to divide that union. No one. So Jesus goes straight to the heart of the question to say, hey, it's, it's not whether you have the right to divorce or not. The real question you should be asking is whether such a thing can ever be in accordance with God's will. That's where you should start. Can it ever be permissible? Not for any reason, could it ever be permissible? That's what Jesus does in his argument. So, to the Pharisees' question concerning divorce, Jesus responds with this biblical definition of what marriage is. But then they come back to him. They come back at him. Look at verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? All right they must think, oh, oh, oh yeah, we got you, Jesus. They must think this at this point, right? Because, because you want to quote the scriptures to us, Jesus? Well, we've got our own scriptures. We're Pharisees, right? And so what they do is they refer to another scripture. Now it's later in the Torah, but it's still in the, in the text. Deuteronomy chapter 24 is what they refer to. But remember, these Pharisees are testing Jesus here. Just remember their motives here. They're not after the truth, They're not actually trying to figure out what the theology in Jesus in the messianic kingdom would be concerning divorce. What they're doing is they're trying to catch him and they obviously feel like they caught him. Yeah, sure, Jesus, you quoted us Genesis, but what about Moses? Because Moses says this, they think they've caught him in a legal error because Moses, in fact, did permit divorce, But this Deuteronomy 24 verse is actually important. I'm going to put this up on the screen. Deuteronomy 24.1 says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency. I underline that because that's an important word. Some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. Now that word, some indecency is the most important part of that verse. In the Hebrew, some indecency, the word in Hebrew is erwat dabar, erwat dabar. And this is a very ambiguous phrase, okay? And it's what the Jews argued about constantly. That little phrase right there, wat debar, is the phrase uh, something indecent, some indecency. It's the basis for the whole Shemai Hillel argument. What does something indecent mean? What does it mean? So the Pharisees ask, why did Moses command divorce? Why did they why did he command it? Now, they say it's a command. Did you see that in the text? Why did Moses command divorce? By calling it a command, the Pharisees are assuming that it's required. They're assuming that it is required of God's people as a part of God's will. And frankly, in certain situations, in certain cases in the Old Testament, uh, specifically when sexual unfaithfulness like adultery occurred, it was commanded. In fact, divorce was commanded and it was actually the penalty was, was harsher than just divorce. If you were an adulterer, you were killed. The Old Testament said you would be killed if you were caught in the act of adultery. So then they ask, why did Moses command divorce? Jesus, if you said that, hey, from the beginning, it's not supposed to be, why would Moses command it? And Jesus returns their jab with another jab. Okay, look at verse eight. Jesus then said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So these rabbis would have known this, but amongst rabbinic first century conversations on theology, rabbis would teach the difference between a command in the law and a concession. Rabbis would teach the difference between a command and a concession. And we need to know this as well. A command, is, it expresses God's heart. A command showed what God desired from the beginning. This is why Jesus started with marriage before he talked about divorce. Marriage was the command. Marriage was God's heart. Marriage was the way he intended it to be, from the beginning, but a concession was something that God allowed. He permitted because of man's sinful condition. So before the fall, before sin, before Genesis chapter three, there was no divorce. The command was be fruitful and multiply, get married, have babies, fill the earth. That is God's command. God's concession then The concession after the fall is sometimes divorce is permitted. This allowance for divorce that Jesus said was not a command. It was a concession to their fallen state uh, was the point of his argument. So on one side, you have this liberal uh, 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 pharisaical view um, that amounted to divorce on demand, divorce for any reason. Sounds very familiar to our culture today. Divorce on demand. And on the other side, you have almost this legalistic view that said divorce was actually commanded. If not, the death penalty was required. And these are the two extremes that Jesus is kind of put in the middle of and they think we've got him. We've got you, Jesus. And to both extremes, Jesus says a firm and lasting no. No. No one should separate what God has joined together. So, Tim Keller, may he rest in peace, Tim Keller illustrates like this. He says, divorce should be as radical as amputating an arm or a leg. That's how he illustrates this point. Like, when I was a kid, I was thinking about this this week, when I was a kid uh, and I would get hurt, uh, my dad would, would try to, uh, like, lift my spirits with dad jokes. I don't know if your dad did that. Yes? Okay, good. I like that. Um, I mean, I do this too, okay? But, but like, like, if I... If I fell off my bike and I skinned up my knee, I had a big old raspberry on my leg or something like that, and I was crying and screaming and weeping or whatever, and my dad would sweep me up in his arms and he would look at my knee. And it was normally like a Band-Aid could handle it, right? Like back teen and a Band-Aid was essentially all that was really needed. But he would look at my knee and he would say, oh my, Chris, my heavens, uh, I think we're going to have to cut this one off. Anybody else's parents do this? Yeah, okay, yeah. That's called parenting 101. Did you put this on your, your parenting class, Gary? Because it should have been there. All right. He would be like, "Oh, I think we're gonna have to amputate. I think we have to cut this one off, Chris." And I'd be like, "No!" And I'd start laughing, and it would help, right? It would help. Uh, and then he, you know, hit me with bactine, which stung. But that was another thing. L- Listen, there might be times when amputation is necessary, lest you die. But any doctor would be run out of practice if they were consistently and quickly saying, let's just cut it off. I mean, can you, you, a hangnail? Amputate, right? Sprained your ankle? Amputate, you know, right? Right, varicose veins? Cut it off, right? Just cut it all off. Like that, amputation is never the first step. It's always the last thing you do. It's always the very last resort, So, if there is ever a case for divorce, it is a concession because of sin, not a command to be adhered to. It's a concession, not a command. Now, verse nine is the tricky verse. This is the tricky one. So let's take a look at it. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. That's the the sticky point verse for us this morning. And we'll spend the rest of our time working on that verse. But let me make my second point here divorce is sometimes permitted. Divorce is sometimes permitted. Old Testament, Moses permitted it. And then in the New Testament, Jesus just gave an allowance for divorce. He gives one exception for when divorce is permissible. Divorce is not permissible for any reason, right? Like Hillel said, but only for sexual unfaithfulness. Like Shammai said, it's not commanded. It's not as far and extreme as Shammai would take it, but that's the reason that Jesus gives. The problem though, the reason why this is sticky is because if you were reading the Greek here, the Greek word uh, that is translated sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, porneia. It's where we get our word pornography from. There is, by the way, a different Greek word for adultery, But Jesus chooses porneia here. And porneia translated in the New Testament is a very broad word that includes many different types of sexual sin. Okay, porneia includes adultery sometimes, sex before marriage, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, and other things. It's like a junk drawer term in the Greek. So the question is, is Jesus saying that Any sexual sin can be grounds for divorce? Well, historically, interpreters have said no. Not any sexual issue. Historically, this has been interpreted as marital unfaithfulness. Pornea has been interpreted as marital unfaithfulness. And I hear me, I think this is probably the best interpretation as I've done my study of what pornea means in this context. I think it makes the most sense. Having sexual experiences with someone other than your spouse is akin to killing the covenant, to killing the marriage. It breaks the two who had become one back apart and it is grounds for divorce. It's not required but it is permitted. That's what I think Jesus is doing. So sexual unfaithfulness is one biblical allowance for divorce. Well, you ask, is that the only one? I'm so glad you asked that. I'm so glad that you asked that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul, the apostle Paul, uses the same logic that Jesus just used of of breaking of the marital covenant to allow for a second biblical permittable divorce, which we call desertion, desertion. So if in a marriage, one spouse becomes a Christian, okay? uh, And the unbelieving partner wants to stay married, the Christian then should not move for divorce, That's what 1 Corinthians 7 talks about. Now, biblically, okay, Christians, hear me, are never supposed to marry someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. Biblically, Christians are never supposed to marry people who are not Christians. This is called the principle of being equally yoked. And listen, if you're not a Christian, you shouldn't want to marry a Christian either. Equally yoked goes all across this world. You should actually want to share in the deepest values with your spouse, whether you believe in Jesus or not. Okay, but equally yoked is a massively important idea that we don't have time to get into this morning. But in the case of 1 Corinthians, here's what's happened. There's this new church in Corinth. Paul has just planted this church. There's no Christians and they start becoming Christians. So they're all new believers. And so what is happening in 1 Corinthians 7, most likely is that there was a couple that was married and then one of the spouses got saved, became a Christian. So they were equally yoked as unbelievers before they got married. Then they got married. Then one of them gets saved. And to that, Paul says, hey, if the unbelieving spouse is willing to stick it out, don't get divorced. Stay as you are. Stay married. But here's the verse. 1 Corinthians 7.15 says this. But, we'll put it up on the screen. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And and that little phrase is not enslaved is so important, okay? That's where theologically we begin to say, oh, this might be another grounds biblically for divorce. If your unbelieving spouse wants a divorce, you can't stop them. You cannot stop them. And that is what we call desertion. If you are deserted, then that's biblical grounds for divorce. You are not enslaved in that marriage any longer. So this is the traditional Protestant position, which is held by most evangelicals and to which we here at Fathom hold. Okay, divorce is permissible on two grounds, sexual unfaithfulness and desertion. That's the the doctrine. In both cases, the reason why divorce is permissible is because the marital covenant has been killed. It's been severed. It's been broken. It's amputated. You ain't sewing that thing back together. That's the idea here. Now, let me just add that I am sympathetic to and yet extremely cautious about finding other grounds for divorce. Sympathetic to, and extremely cautious. You ask, do do these two things, do they cover every conceivable situation in which divorce could reflect God's permissive will? And my answer is, I don't know. But let me quote one of my seminary professors, Dr. Craig Blomberg. This is what he says in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 7. Obviously, Jesus' teaching was not exhaustive or Paul could not have added to it. So Matthew 19 is not exhaustive because Paul added to it. Cautious interpreters, therefore, have suggested additional extreme situations in which divorce may be the least evil of several options. It's probably best not to add to the biblical list, however, but simply to treat other cases one at a time. Asking if the marriage has in reality been as fundamentally destroyed as if sexual unfaithfulness or irrevocable abandonment had occurred. I thought that was a really helpful summation. It would seem that there could be other extreme situations. And yet, I I think it's safer biblically to maintain that there are two acceptable grounds for divorce. But I'm just saying, I could envision extreme circumstances where we might conclude this man or woman has not maybe completely abandoned the marriage, but their life is tantamount to desertion. I can imagine this. If a person is strung out on drugs, unwilling to get help, unwilling to find recovery, maybe gambling all of the worldly possessions of a family, putting the family in dire straits when it comes to their possessions and finances, or a repeated like physical abuse of their spouse, beating of their children, things like that. Might that count as desertion at some point? Perhaps. And none of this is to be entered into lightly. Amputation is never the first option. But I will say this, okay? If you're in a physically abusive marriage, you need to get out. You need to get out of physical contact with your abuser. I'm not saying that divorce is the only or the prescribed method, but I am saying you need to get safe and second, you need to get help and discern whether next steps are necessary. So I think that each case of divorce needs to be dealt with individually. There are two permissible reasons that the Bible gives for divorce, but I think every case of divorce, whether permissible or extra, needs to be handled individually because there's a lot of things that need to work into this. A lot of wisdom, a lot of conversation. It's why we need biblical principles so that we have something to apply in gut-wrenching emotional situations. You need to deal with these things. It's also why we need the local church. I mean, I really think this is an apologetic for why we need Christian community, pastors and elders to walk with us in discernment. I'm just begging you, if you're in any of these conversations, don't try to walk this out on your own. Don't, I mean, you you need other brothers and sisters to walk with you in these conversations. We having fun this morning? I knew it was, it's just, guys, this is just one of those heavier ones that we show up in the text and we'll, we'll, we'll laugh more next week, okay? But um, let's, let's move on to our last bit here to the question of remarriage, okay? Hey, if you thought divorce was tricky, remarriage is only trickier, okay? So this is good. Um, remarriage. So Jesus, back to verse nine again, Jesus said that an unbiblical divorce followed by remarriage Amounts to adultery. So what do we do with that? When, if ever, is remarriage not adultery? That's the first question. When, if ever, is remarriage not the same as adultery? Well, if you were to open up to Romans chapter seven in verse three, you would find that remarriage is clearly allowed. Remarriage in Romans chapter seven is clearly allowed. After a spouse dies, after a spouse dies, you are free to remarry. And the same logic as used for divorce is applied there. The covenant is dead. You're not bound to it because the spouse is dead. The covenant is dead. The live spouse is free to remarry. So, so remarriage is permitted at some level. The second then question is what about after a divorce? Is remarriage permitted after a divorce? Let's start with after a biblically sanctioned divorce. Something that we feel like we could say, hey, evidenced based on um, sexual unfaithfulness or di- desertion That divorce was biblical. I had biblical grounds for that divorce. Am I free to remarry? Well, let me make my third point. I'll remind you of the first two. Marriage is one man and one woman for one lifetime. Jesus starts with marriage. Divorce is sometimes permitted. There are extreme regulations around that. But third, remarriage is permitted where divorce is permitted. Remarriage is permitted where divorce is permitted. Let me give you a few reasons why I think this is the biblical stance. First, in our text, the very fact that Jesus had to clarify when it's not permissible to be remarried implies that there are some times when it is. There's a logical argument there. There's a logical argument. Second, all scholars from every side of this debate, and I read a lot this week, but all scholars from every side of this debate agree that it was a given in first century Jewish culture that remarriage was an option after a valid divorce. That's why the certificate of divorce was given. So all of the Jews at that moment, when Jesus said these words would have thought remarriage is on the table. Therefore, if Jesus wanted to teach that remarriage after every divorce was unacceptable, he would have needed to make that much clearer because that would have been a new teaching to their ears. Third, this goes back now to 1 Corinthians 7 and Paul's words when he said that, that, that they are not enslaved, To to be not enslaved from 1 Corinthians 7.15 probably implies that the spouse who has been deserted is actually free to marry as well. So I think for those three reasons, remarriage is permitted where divorce is permitted. Now, of course, just because a divorced person may be free to remarry, it does not necessarily mean that's a good or wise idea. If, you're, if your marriage broke up, even if you had very little to play in the reason why it broke up, you would, do, you would do really well to take a long period of time with a lot of wise counsel and maybe even therapy to work through that before you enter into a second marriage. Just remember the stats, how they increase on second and third marriages. So just because a divorced person may be free to remarry does not mean it's necessarily a good or wise idea. But the general principle is where God gives concession for divorce, he seems to also give concession for remarriage. That's what I see in the text. Now, let's talk about unbiblical divorce. If you are divorced, and as you look back and rehash it in your brain, you don't think it was actually biblically permissible divorce, then the Bible is saying that you should remain single. And this, perhaps, is the most unpopular thing I will say to you this morning. If you went through an unbiblical divorce, the Bible is saying that you should not remarry. Jesus is saying that you should not remarry lest you become an adulterer. And listen, that is so unpopular for me to say. It's very unpopular, even, listen, even within the church. And I'm trying to figure out in my brain why that's so unpopular, even in the church this week. And here's why I think, this is, this is completely me, okay? This is what I think. This is not backed up by the scriptures. So take it at, at, at face value, okay? But here's what I think. I think we tend to believe that because God is a God of second chances, because God is a God of grace, because God is a God of mercy and love and compassion, we think therefore there shouldn't be any ramifications from our first chances. Because God gives us a second chance, there shouldn't be any hangover from the first. But, but this is the seriousness with which the Bible takes marriage. Jesus calls a unbiblical divorce and then a remarriage adultery. That's how, he would not throw those words around lightly. So remember, remember here, okay? You gotta hear me. Where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. Where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds, but don't you dare take that to mean that divorce is no big deal. Divorce is no small thing. Uh, Really? Jesus just said it amounts to adultery. It amounts to killing the covenant. And so please, I've heard this also, and this is just hard, okay? But please don't think you can just remarry and then repent later. Gosh, that's a dangerous, slippery slope of sin. This is a dangerous place. If that's your mentality, be really, really questioning whether or not you genuinely believe and follow Jesus. And I say that with complete confidence. Now, I am hesitant to give the sweeping black and white blanket statement of when remarriage is permissible and when it's not. Just like I was with divorce. There's two reasons biblically for divorce and there might be other exceptions, okay? So there might be extreme cases, but hear me, remarriage is something that really, again, needs to be taken case by case. Just like divorce needs to be taken case by case. Even if you had a biblical divorce, it might be wise to remain single. Actually, that's why Jesus goes straight into singleness after this. That's why Paul says, I wish you would just remain as you are. I wish you were just like me, single, content, secure in that. Again, you need to be a part of an active church to be able to discern these things. You need wisdom around you to help you with this. You need leaders that you've submitted under to speak truth and love into your life. That's why this all plays out together. Last bit of application before we close out. uh, We talked about um, biblical divorce and remarriage. We talked about unbiblical divorce and remarriage. Lastly, if you were unbiblically divorced and have already remarried, what about you? As I'm talking today, maybe you're like, uh-oh. Jesus just said that if I got divorced and then I remarried, it's adultery. So what about us? What about our marriage, the second, this third marriage? Well, I can't find any place in the Bible where it says that breaking a second marriage covenant will somehow fix the first Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 7 that each should remain as they are, inferring that if you're single, you should remain as you are. If you're married, you should remain as you are. So I think you should take that logic and apply it to your, your second marriage, your third marriage, and stay in that marriage. But I think you should do some deep heart work around that. You should be asking questions like, what do I need to confess? What still hasn't been confessed? Where do I need to repent? Are there areas in my life and my past that are still hardened to Christ? And just like with any sin, if there is genuine repentance, God is faithful to restore and forgive. Where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. But does that mean that like all those Christians who were previously divorced unbiblically and then remarried uh, unbiblically, does that mean that they just got away with it? Does that mean you just get away with sin? And the answer is no, not at all. We are never better off for having sinned. You're never better off for having sinned. Never. You you might think it. You would never be better off for having sinned. There are always consequences in our relationships. There may be consequences in your spiritual life. And if you look back on your sinful divorce and remarriage and think, wow, I'm really glad I didn't hear Chris's sermon about this 10 years ago. If that's the posture of your heart, that's a big time red flag that something is very messed up in your heart still. It's a big time red flag. If the spirit is at work in your heart, you will not think, man, I really got away with that one. You'll never think that. If the spirit's at work in your heart, you will say, oh Lord, I'm so sorry. Sorry. I'm I'm devastated by this. I was ignorant to the scriptures. I was blind to my sin. I have broken your law. I have sullied the name of Christ. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. That's your response. That's conviction of sin. That's a good gift of the spirit on the believer. Okay, let me end with this. In John chapter four, there's a story we find a story of Jesus coming to a well. And he comes to the well in the heat of the day and a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. It's about noon. And Jesus strikes up a conversation with this uh, Samaritan woman. And he says this in John chapter four, verse 13. We'll put it up on the screen. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman at the well, five husbands That means five divorces. And the sixth, she's just shacking up with because at some point it becomes ridiculous. And you know what I love about this story? I mean, so many things, but you know what I love today about this story? I love that Jesus doesn't downplay the most embarrassing, painful, shame-filled, dirty part of her life. I mean, I, I love that he doesn't placate her, right? He he doesn't excuse her sin. He doesn't pretend it didn't happen. No, he enters right into the awkward. He pushes right through and takes her shame head on and he makes her a better offer. Do you see that? He makes her a better offer than her sin could ever produce. Church, this is the God who we love and serve. This is who we love and who we serve. To us in our brokenness, he says, come. To us in our sinfulness, he says, come. To us in our guilt, in our shame, in our dirty, he says, come on over. Wherever you are today, these are his words for you. Come. Come and I will give you living water and you'll never be thirsty again. See, sex and marriage and divorce and remarriage and singleness, none of those things will satisfy you. They'll never satisfy you. Your relational status will not satisfy you. You're being completed by another person. It will not fully and finally satisfy you. You'll still be thirsty. You'll still be coming to the well but Jesus has living water for you that will become a spring of water that will well up into eternal life. Church, where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. God help us with this. Let's pray. Father, this is a heavier topic than, than sometimes we find as we're working through the text. It's heavier because this is a, a pain point for many of us, myself included. This is a pain point. It's like, it's like when you've got a tooth that's going rotten and everything that touches it just kind of shocks with pain. That's kind of how this topic feels to many of us. Divorce marital unfaithfulness, adultery, abandonment, even remarriage. These are all things that can feel like, oh, they're heavy, they're weighty. They're full of shame. They're full of guilt. And yet Jesus, you enter right into that fray. You enter right into that mix and you bring both grace, yes, and truth. You bring, yes, mercy for those who repent, but you also promise judgment against those who do not. And so today I pray for my friends here. I pray for myself here that we would have hearts that are soft to hear the good news that is in this passage. That Jesus Christ loves to save sinners. And that if we bow the knee to him and we confess those five husbands and the sixth who we're just sleeping with, that he is good and he is faithful to forgive and to give us living water. So I pray, I pray for us. Maybe our hearts are hard. Maybe our hearts are softening. Maybe our hearts are hurt. Holy Spirit, you are the true preacher at Fathom Church. Speak to those places. Convict where conviction is needed. Encourage where encouragement is needed and help us all continue to take those steps towards maturity, towards wholeness, towards Christ-likeness. So Father, we love you. Thank you for this text. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen.